The island of Newfoundland keeps its secrets close, shrouds them in mystery. But once in a while, the fog is lifted. The truth comes out. I get a feeling there's something going on here. My whole body was shaken. You go to bed believing that you're a certain person one night, and then all of a sudden the next day, everything that you've known is not true. This is not the life that I should have lived. I'm Luke Quinton from CBC. This is Come By Chance. Available now. This is a CBC Podcast. Some mysteries begin to unravel by pure accident. Someone hears something unusual about a strange coincidence, perhaps. And next thing you know, that someone has gone down the rabbit hole for some amateur sleuthing. The thing about rabbit holes is that they tend to lead to warrens, labyrinths, where each path, instead of offering an answer, only gives you another question. I'm AC Rowe, and this is The Doc Project. Today, our sleuth is CBC News producer Steve McNally. The mystery that captured Steve's attention all started with a group of kids, now in their 60s. These kids had a lot in common. They all lived in the same neighborhood in Ottawa, went to the same school, played at the same park in summer, and skated on the same ice rink in winter. But some of them, just some of them, have something else in common, too. A medical puzzle. All right, to set the scene, it was a bright and sweltering afternoon in July. Here's Steve. So I've never uh, been to a school reunion before. Uh, But I'm on my way to one now, and uh, not one I ever could have envisioned before. I've got to say, I'm feeling a little bit anxious about it. I suppose most people do. I'm worried about how you're going to look and sound, how you've fared over time. But that's not really uh, why I'm nervous uh, about it. I'm anxious about it because I'm about to meet up with people that I spent years and years living very close to, playing with, going to school with, who inexplicably, several of them, have become very ill, all pretty much at the same time. I just ring the doorbell. Jacques and I haven't seen each other in over 50 years. Hey! <laughs> and our reunion starts with a warning that I might get crushed by his front door. Hurry, the door's gonna close. Up. Okay, all right. We were classmates in grade school in Ottawa. This will be good. Uh, I know you way back from elementary school when we moved from Orleans, Ontario to. Uh, Envale Acres in 1965. And then I started grade four at uh, Saint Genevieve. And, uh, and you were in that class. So, uh, 50 plus years? Something like that. Yeah. We grew up less than half a kilometer from each other in the Ottawa suburb of Envale Acres. 
My name is uh, Jacques Dutrizac, and I live in uh, Hunt Club, Ottawa, on a, on a, in a, the La Fontaine Co-op, the best place that I found for a person like me. By person like me, he means a person who needs a wheelchair. That's why he has one of those automatic door closers that can shut on you unexpectedly. And his illness is why I've come back to Ottawa for this unusual reunion, meeting up one by one with several old classmates who are also ill. It takes me a minute to take it all in. Jacques in a large electric wheelchair, his body tilting a bit to one side, his hands looking gnarled in his lap. The tabletops are strewn with all kinds of papers and remote controls and other things, presumably so they're all within easy reach. I think you look more like like you did when you were young. His face is still handsome and younger than it ought to look. A lot of people don't believe I'm in my 60s. Yeah. Chuck's sounding pretty sharp. He says he was always good at remembering things like birthdays. For some reason, some dates stick in my head, and I, I just remember them. And he was right when he said mines in late November. He remembers a bunch for others that we went to school with as kids. I never knew what I wanted to do in life. I thought I was going to be a hockey player. That's what I thought. In fact, he played Tier 1 hockey, eventually went on to work at the post office because he enjoyed physical labor and independence. You were standing up, you were moving around, you were pushing things around or uh, handling mail bags and... I was never a person to sit down all the time. I was always outside working, whatever. But then all kinds of strange things started to happen, like when he was on the hockey rink. I'd be playing, and then like, I'd, I'd go out there, and then one day I'd just fall. But then, like, some weeks I'd go out, and the guys were saying, oh, you were flying out there. And I, I, you know, and I knew everything was working well. But then I'd go the next time, I'd take a slap shot, I'd fall down, or I'd run into everybody. Sometimes it felt like it, like I was playing in snow, like there was snow in front of my eyes. Only after one particularly bad episode did he finally find out why. The year was 1991. When I had my big attack, the doctor at the emergency room, he's, he's talking about cerebral lesions and stuff, and I have no idea what the hell is going on. When I was diagnosed with MS, I had never heard of it. My family had never heard of it, my friends. So I went and did some reading. But he soon learned it's a heartbreaker of a disease, one that slowly wears you down with no known cause or cure. Some people go blind, uh, some people go deaf, some people can't speak, or it can be anything. It just depends where your brain affects your body or your, the controls are damaged. For Jacques, it was blurred vision and paralyzed legs and eventually his hands. He figured that it was a bad break, that he'd drawn one of life's short straws. And I thought to myself, wow, well, lucky me, right? Luck, good and bad, flukes and chance encounters, his story is full of them. And they've made him question what he thought he knew about his illness. 
The first fluke came only months after he was diagnosed and went into the MS clinic in Ottawa. When I go there, there's a woman working in the clinic who I went to high school with. And I explained to her I'd just been diagnosed with MS. And that's where she says, oh, do you remember Diane Ladussard? Because she's got MS. Really? I said, well, I remember, of course I remember her. She lived on my street. And that's how the whole thing started. Explain that for me what uh, what you're treating so Dan for at the moment. Yeah, so we're just doing stretches just to uh, stretch all the tendons out, uh, just because of the night spasms. When I reunite with Diane Ladusseur, she's flat on her bed with one leg pointing up. Hold it for 20 seconds, and then her support workers pushing and pushing to make it go further toward the ceiling. It looks like torture. Yeah, it makes it, it makes. Oh no, this pleasant. This is pleasant. <laughs> I woke up April 27th, 1987, with half my body paralyzed. And when I was first diagnosed, the only thing I was told was, MS is not mortal and it's not contagious. Sometimes if you've pushed it just a bit too far, it'll bring on a spasm. Deanna's had MS for decades, but these stretches are for a new problem that showed up just a year ago. Muscle spasms began to hit her in the middle of the night, causing terrible cramps in her legs that just won't stop. It seems to happen always when my legs are straight and lying down. She says her ailments are forever changing. But you can't say, oh yeah, this will happen, this. You never know, you never know. So it's always, okay, today, what will I be able to do, you know? It's just interesting. And so you're always having to adapt, always having to kind of reinvent yourself. Unlike Jacques, Diane's actually able to stand up for a few minutes at a time. But the MS has also attacked her bladder and her voice. I remember her as shy, petite, kind of fragile. But as an adult, she was an avid runner and spent years volunteering at the Y as an aerobics instructor. She traveled the country for her job. That's the thing about MS. It strikes when people are young. She was still in her 20s that day when she woke up half-paralyzed. Jacques didn't know any of this. Each had long since got married and moved away from Plesser Street. What surprised him even more than finding her sick with MS was that Deanne knew others from the neighborhood who had also been diagnosed. I stayed in touch with many of my friends on Plesser Street, and so they would tell me, oh, I know so-and-so who was diagnosed. And and so you... Keep the channels open, looking for other people. Now Jacques was sure that something just wasn't right, and he and Diane got to work investigating their old childhood neighborhood. Yeah, I don't know, what's on top of those boxes? Those, uh, so to your right, no, below that, down one, down one, okay, okay, above, what's that? Jacques's got a back room where he's got stacks of things that look to be from his life before he got sick. Things he can't use anymore, like a turntable and crates of vinyl records. But in one box, he has an old Rolodex, one of those no-tech things that holds a bunch of little index cards on a rotating wheel. It was from decades earlier, but he thought it was worth trying, and he started a dial. I went with things that I still had, and hopefully that they were still good. 
and I lucked in on a lot of them, and some of the, like some people still have the same phone numbers from from years ago. I lucked in in, in that sense, and and I, then I got new ones from trying to contact the other people. The information just fell on my lap, type of thing. And he started making a list as he confirmed their diagnoses. Diane was working her contacts and passing the names on to Jacques. When I would go to information sessions and discover other people at MS who went to high school with us, I would always call Jacques and tell him, hey Jacques, you know, this person has MS, and he would, he would always take notes. He's been keeping notes on this for a long time. Eventually, he all but lost the use of his hands, so no more writing or typing. Incredibly, he started committing it all to memory. That knack of remembering birthdays was now creating an oral history of his quest. It was a slow process, but he got some lucky breaks. But where it really, really exploded, I guess, is when my parents went to a a church function. Jacques' parents happened to mention his diagnosis to others at their church. And they said, oh yeah, and then, well, we know some other people, and again, I got a hold of them, they told me their stories of who they knew and who I knew, and it it just mushroomed from there. It was like his investigation was taking on a momentum of its own. He joked he was like Aaron Brockovich, the American activist who exposed a tainted water scandal in the 1990s. He started to find clues almost everywhere he turned, like the day back when he could still walk with a cane and he decided to go down to the store. It was a beautiful spring day. So I'm, lo- I'm walking along. The other way, here comes another guy. He's walking with a cane. And we sort of looked at each other, you know, you're kind of young to, to walk with a cane. And, and anyway, so I, I said to him, well, I've got MS. He says, well, I've got MS too. And he lived on Valley Drive. I don't know how many yards from Plesser Street. But he, he, he lived in the neighborhood, and he had MS. It just looked like the whole neighborhood seemed to have a MS. Jacques and I went to revisit the old neighborhood in one of those wheelchair-accessible taxi vans. It's a sweltering day in July. The chains holding his heavy chair in place in the back register every little bump on the road as we pass the apartment building where I lived with my mother and down toward Plesser Street. It was all brand new when we moved here in the 1960s. Plesser was still a work in progress. When we moved here, not all the houses were completed. We would see the construction workers work all day, and they uh, used uh, pop bottles. When they finished with them, they would just throw them out. So after their day was done and they were gone, as kids, we'd go and pick up the uh, pop bottles, and then we would cash them in and get ourselves some candies with it. So we spent a lot of time picking up empty pop bottles. It's over 30 degrees in the sun, and we don't dare get out. That kind of heat is really bad for people with MS. So we drive by Jacques' old house and those of all the others. Four houses back was Carage uh, de and over here, that's where I lived. It's a three-bedroom house. And two houses over 
It's Susan, who's a few years younger than us. And as we get to the end of the street here, on the right, that's where Zian was. I mean, we got four of them on the same little street. So you, you gotta figure something's going on. We talk about how this used to be farmland. As kids, we had the run of big open fields that eventually got built on. Over on the other side of Walkley, those are all big uh, cow fields and stuff like that. For me, this was idyllic. But now, Jacques asking if this is where his run of bad luck began. A few things about MS are known for sure. One is that its victims have some kind of genetic vulnerability to it. The other is that something else triggers it, causing the body's immune system to damage its nerves. The neighborhood was bucolic then and it's lovely still. But Jacques has more than a dozen names on his list. All had lived in a one-kilometer radius at roughly the same time. So he wonders if there was something hidden here that caused their multiple sclerosis. There are a lot of theories about the soil, about power lines, even whether floods might have affected the water for a time. But no single environmental cause has ever been identified by scientists as a trigger. But Jacques and Diane thought this place might hold a valuable clue. Each of them told their neurologists about the old friends and neighbors who were also sick. But unlike everyone else, they told, the doctors were in no way shocked. Yeah, I've mentioned it to... Uh uh, a whole bunch of doctors, and they just had no reply to what I, I was telling them. They just shrugged it off, I guess. It just as a coincidence. He even called the MS Society to ask if it knew about a bunch of cases in Elmville Acres. They didn't. Frustrated, Jacques took it public at conferences organized by the society. I picked up the microphone like at the end of a, their conference. They said, does anybody have any questions or whatever? And I picked up the microphone and I, I said, well, I don't have a question, but I've got a story. And I told them that story. And this was how, by chance, he connected with Carol Zhuratovac, another classmate who lived on his street. And I remember him um, standing up and he introduced himself, you know, at the mic. And he said, Jacques And I said, oh, my goodness. I think I went to school with him, and that's how. And then after I was looking out for him, and I thought, I'll go up and, and introduce myself. He told her he had 14 names on his list and suspected that it might be an MS cluster. So surprised, very surprised. I mean, when I was reading about MS and that, I read about clusters. It was like four or five, maybe, in a whole village. But not like this. I mean, same age, same classroom, same street, same block. Kind of makes you wonder thing. Carol knew a reporter at the CBC in Ottawa who talked to her before about her MS. They connected, and before long, Hilary Johnstone was on the phone to Jacques, and she was keen to check out what he'd found in Elmville Acres. I started trying to track down some of Jacques' classmates. You know, I felt I needed to verify this somehow, that they actually had all gone to school together and they, they had all developed MS. And so I started phoning people. And a lot of the people that I got in touch with 
would be able to confirm, yes, I am this person, yes, I knew Jacques, yes, I was in his grade five class, yes, I have multiple sclerosis, no, I don't live in Ottawa anymore. Um, there were at least half a dozen who I spoke with directly. She spent hours and hours on the phone, months piecing together the details and talking to experts. And in September of 2016, the CBC ran the story online, on radio, and on TV across Canada, in English and in French. 59-year-old Jacques Dutrisac was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis in 1991, and within weeks he started hearing... And I woke up probably about 5 a.m. because I was so nervous about it. Canada has the highest rate of MS in the world, and Dutrisac says he wonders if this group is part of something called an MS cluster. And I checked my email. What she saw shocked her. I have never, ever had a response like that to a story before or since. The emails that were coming into my inbox, I could not keep up with them. Dozens and dozens and dozens of emails. By the end of the week, she says there were between 250 and 300 emails. Jacques couldn't use his computer anymore because of his hands. So Hillary printed a pile and brought them to him. Maybe those are the emails. Uh, Jacques still has them. We yes. dug them out of a closet in his back room. Okay. Just people saying they were shocked. And yeah. Yeah. They talk about how they had been diagnosed. Many were from people in other parts of the country with similar stories. It's a pretty thick pile. But some yeah. had direct connections yeah. to Unvel Acres. Oh, this is somebody who lived over on Coronation. Ah, okay. Uh, like in one case... Uh, one woman that saw the report, and her brother, again, who only lived, well, well, they lived a few blocks away from our widow, he's, he's got MS. That's how I found out he's, he had MS. So the number jumped from 14 to 17 people. A friend sent me your story because I have MS. I lived on that street back in the 80s, onto the early 90s. Some of them just wrote about Jacques saying, wow, Jacques Dutrisac, that man in your story, that's an incredible story that he told. I think people seem to realize, possibly more so from the radio or television piece where you can, you can hear him and you can hear how much of his own personal time and energy he's devoted to this over the years. Um, people seem to really sympathize for him. He also got a call out of the blue from England. A prestigious magazine there was wanting to send a writer and a photographer. And they did a big feature story with Jacques on the cover. Oh, Nature Outlook. There, that's it. Look at that. He and the others were pretty hopeful that all this attention would make their case impossible to ignore. This is the original. That's the original. But there was nothing from researchers, doctors, or anyone from the MS community. Only the hundreds of MS sufferers who wrote those emails. And for Jacques, Diane, and Carol, that just added to the Unveil Acres mystery. The suggestion from their doctors that this could all be just a coincidence left Jacques and the others feeling pretty gutted. In the face of what looked like solid evidence, it felt like a brush-off. And in the absence of an explanation, the word coincidence really meant nothing to them. But as I looked at what the doctors meant by it, I found some hard facts at the heart of that assessment. You hear the word cluster a lot when groups of people get sick, whether it's with MS or something else. In a research context, it's quite a specific term. 
One expert told me it's defined as a group that experiences a sudden and serious ailment in unusual numbers. And when that bar is met, long and expensive investigations go looking for the cause. In the case of MS, a lot have been done, some going back to the 1940s. And I was shocked when I talked to the guy who literally wrote the book, MS, The History of a Disease. Dr. Jock Murray told me that not one of the cluster studies conducted here and around the world found a smoking gun, a trigger for MS. But that's the thing that people look for in clusters. If you get a group, surely we might find something. But in fact, nothing has ever been found in any cluster study. Every study that we know of has not identified anything that explained uh, an unusual grouping. Murray says one reason is that MS is particularly tough to pin down. Something triggers the immune system to attack the body, but so little is known about what that trigger might be that nothing is off the table. They looked at everything from unpasteurized milk to dogs. And the real problem is you don't start with a hypothesis. You start with a fishing expedition. And you don't have any clue what the link could be. So you start looking. For instance, I did a cluster study in which... I was told that there were 15 cases in a rural area. And I spent two years looking. We looked at their well water. Um, we looked at all kinds of things. And what we found was it was probably genetic that most of these people were related. Even though some of them didn't know that they were related. And he's found that there were often other complications. When people say, you know, they're... There are eight people in my high school who developed MS. The first question is, how do you know they have MS? Because I studied a cluster group, and they said there were 15 cases. Actually, a number of them didn't have MS. They had other neurological diseases. People thought they had MS. Canada has one of the highest rates of MS in the world. It's estimated one in 400 people currently have it. And with those kinds of numbers, Murray says groupings are inevitable. It's what random distribution looks like. If you phone any MS clinic in Canada, they'll tell you about people who have told them about groupings. You know, so many people on our street, so many people in our high school or whatever. But if you look at a lot of these, it's just what one would expect with the irregular distribution of MS. Groupings are so common, one MS researcher told me that the last time the one was fully investigated as a cluster was over 20 years ago. Like all the others, it failed to find a common cause. My full name is Ramachandran Nair. I am the Emeritus Professor at the University of Ottawa School of Public Health and Epidemiology. Ramanair is a retired epidemiologist. He's familiar with Jacques' list of MS victims. I met him in a park in suburban Ottawa. And he agreed that the Umvel Acres case looks unusual, probably on the borderline of what might be investigated, at least in a preliminary sense. He said straight up, though, that it didn't strike him as a likely cluster. But what he thinks the doctors and neurologists here failed to appreciate is just how very real it was to those directly involved. Clearly, when you look at such a large number in a small area, people get worried. And he says someone from the MS community needed to explain 
how the statistics would show that their grouping should not set off alarm bells. That concept is very hard to explain to a lay person. Uh, most people do understand it, but some people just can't get it. So scientists, what they do is simply shut off and say, this is what we are saying, and we know the results, so you listen to us. And that is a bad attitude. That's what I feel. Hard to explain or not, Nair says the experts ought to have at least tried. But 2016 was exactly not the time for MS doctors to come out in public, dashing the hopes of patients and telling them they just didn't understand the science. The whole MS world was in turmoil. Neurologists, researchers, patients, support groups, families, all in a drawn-out civil war over what many were absolutely convinced was a miracle breakthrough in treating MS. It was called the liberation therapy. Many will remember it as the Zamboni therapy, named after the Italian doctor who came up with it. Meet the man behind the new hope. He says his MS treatment could change everything. So why then are Canadians having to leave the country? It was a small trial group, but it swept the world. One group even compared him in a press release today to early explorers who tried to prove the world wasn't flat. And joining us now on the line from Winnipeg, Manitoba. The media coverage in Canada was especially intense. And she recently underwent something called liberation therapy in Bangalore, India. Some here trumpeting it as a possible cure. People were claiming it helped their symptoms and patients wanted it. Two brothers have now undergone a controversial surgery in Poland that is not available in Canada. Their doctor said no, that the science was bad and the operation was risky. His experimental treatment, a surgery to improve blood flow through veins in the neck. Venous angioplasty, that is potentially dangerous and could lead to stroke and heart complications. But for years, patients continued to clamor for it. In the community, a lot of people were pissed off. Well, there were Carol was among them. People were very upset. Rather than shooting down, poo-pooing it, they should have been more willing to go along and try and see and let's find out one way or the other, you know, rather than right away, oh, no, that doesn't work. Both she and Diane raised thousands to get the operation in the U.S. in defiance of their doctor's advice. And across the country, relationships between patients and doctors were poisoned. It was a really dark time, says medical historian Jock Murray, a time of street protests and online abuse, even death threats. Patients saw us as being the enemy. Because we were trying to keep a miracle therapy away from them. And neurologists, the ones in Alberta, for instance, were threatened. And they were worried about their security. To another major story tonight. And for Canadians living with multiple sclerosis, more disappointing news about a treatment for which... Even though the procedure was proven ineffective, even by Dr. Zamboni himself... The damage was done. Meanwhile, scientists around the world have been trying to reproduce the original findings, and so far no one has been able to do it. I spoke to several doctors, some insisting that they not be named, and they confirmed that experts were afraid to weigh in on the Ottawa Cluster Group story after it went big in the media. The public square was just not a safe space for a new debate with patients. Ramanair learned a thing or two over his long career in epidemiology, about science and about people. You have some experience of dealing with the public. Yes. Which goes in with a preconceived notion and presenting them with data. Yes. And changing their minds? Yes, yes. 
and he's grown keenly aware of how skeptical a lot of people are of science. He confronted it as the lead epidemiologist on his own cluster study. The similar thing happened in Whitchurch. Uh, they had a higher incidence of cancer in, in a particular area. And, uh, again, it was in an Ontario town called Whitchurch, Stouffville, where in the 1980s, an alarming number of people had cancer. To a statistical analyst like Nair, the numbers were not startling. But neighbors were dying. It was terrifying to the people living there. Nair was almost certain of two things. One, was that he'd most likely find that these deaths were just a coincidence. And two, that if his team said so in their study, they'd be accused of some kind of government cover-up. So one of the first things I said is, why don't we involve, engage the community itself? Let's not do it simply as a scientist-led study. They brought in a group of laymen from the town to help guide the research. In the planning of the study, we included the community representatives. We said, okay, select two or three people. And every decision that we make in terms of who to interview, when to interview, what the questionnaire look like, that it is relevant to them, and we are not missing something. So we included them at every step of the way. Those people shared their concerns, their suspicions and questions, and Nair's team reported back regularly to the community on their findings. So the whole study was carried out with the community participation. So when the final report two years and half a million dollars later showed them that they were not getting cancer from something in the environment, they believed it. The result was negative, but the community said, okay, they did everything that we could suggest, that we could think about. So there is really nothing, you know, yeah, there is something happening, but there's nothing we can do about it. It is not something that the ministry is trying to hide. There were some important differences between the Stouffville situation and the one in Elmville Acres. People were dying, and it was happening right then, not in decades past. But they also had a lot of members of the community pushing the province to take action. And they got the attention of people with power. Jacques, Diane, and Carol were coping with their declining health and didn't have the energy to wage a campaign for recognition. They'd hoped that would be done for them, by the doctors, researchers, or the MS Society. Yeah. So here's. Uh, here. Yeah, we just need to, just need a second. Uh, I'd asked Jacques when was the last time he'd gotten out of his house for a meal. He said it might have been a couple of years. So on my last day in town, we got the wheelchair taxi driver to take us to an A and W drive-through. Yeah. Did I hear chicken strips? Would that be easier? Yes. That would be a lot simpler. I'd brought along a couple of beers and some straws to make it easier for Jacques to drink. Do you want that with fries? Yes. Okay, I think we're ready to order. Okay. Thanks. Uh, so can we have uh, one order of uh, chicken strips? We head to Vincent Massey Park, a place we both remembered well from our childhood. And we talked about another chance encounter one that opened a whole new line of inquiry for Jacques' investigation. It started when my sister bumped into one of my cousins on my father's Not just any cousin, but one of many from Jacques' father's side of the family, ones they had lost track of, relatives neither Jacques nor his sister had seen for decades. And my cousin just happened to see the CBC broadcast with me when they did the report on me, and then she told them, well, doesn't Jacques know about Miriam? Miriam is another cousin, and to Jacques' total amazement, she had also been diagnosed with MS. I, I have no idea. For, uh, before me, nobody 
nobody in the family had been diagnosed with MS before me mm. on you know either side of the family whether it's my mother's side or or my father's side but up until recently is it's all been on my father's side but like I said before me I had no idea and it didn't end there Jacques tracked down his other estranged cousins too I found out another cousin who's about 10 years younger than me, well, she's got MS. And then getting back to my cousin who's 10 years younger, younger than me, well, she had three children. And one, her son now has MS. And at the other, the other end of the scale, my oldest cousin, uh, well, she, he, she doesn't have MS, but she had a daughter. And her daughter's got MS, so... So that's five of us all together on my father's side of the family who has MS. So what does that mean for his argument that the blame lies with something in the environment? So have you changed your mind about this theory you've been working uh, oh, on? Yeah, I guess yeah, I've, I guess I have to change it now that I see it through another angle. Because uh, before, like I said, I thought it was strictly a environmental uh, point of view but now trying to untangle uh, this mess I guess is, is going to take a, a while to figure out what triggers what, what's the trigger if that's the word I'm looking for if there is one what's the, the gene I guess that sets it off and he's still hoping his research from Elvale Acres gets examined after all the experts believe genetic and environmental causes somehow interact to produce a person's MS. Well, wow. Well, now I guess it'll, it'll help the researchers trying to find a common link, I guess, between uh, the, the genetic part, uh, what, what triggers MS in, in, on our side of the family, for example. There was a lot I didn't know about just what Jacques and the others were up against in trying to understand why so many had gotten sick. How unfortunate timing and events way beyond their control may have denied them what they sought. But this strange reunion with old classmates made it clear to me that they haven't been crushed by it. They've had bigger worries as they get older and more frail. All still fiercely courageous in facing this disease where so often the only way is down. And while they'd still like some answers, they haven't got time to dwell on the reasons they never got any. All right. Cheers to you. <laughs> oh. Way better than root beer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Doc was produced by Steve McNally. It was edited and mixed by Joan Weber. Special thanks to the CBC's Hillary Johnstone for her original reporting on this story. And one final note on this. As part of his reporting, Steve spoke to the CEO of the Canadian MS Society, Dr. Pam Valentine. She wasn't with the society when Jacques Dutrizac tried to alert the organization, or when his story was first reported by the CBC. But... She told Steve the society overhauled the way it communicates with patients in the wake of those years of turmoil. 
and she thinks the reception they, or some other similar group of patients, would get today would be quite different. Valentine extended a personal invitation to the Ottawa group to get in touch with her, saying she'd be happy to talk, maybe bring in some expertise to deal with their lingering questions. All right, coming up, the story of a prairie yoga organization that is doing things its own way. Sit tight. The island of Newfoundland keeps its secrets close, shrouds them in mystery. But once in a while, the fog is lifted, the truth comes out. I get a feeling there's something going on here. My whole body was shaken. You go to bed believing that you're a certain person one night, and then all of a sudden the next day, everything that you've known is not true. This is not the life that I should have lived. I'm Luke Quinton from CBC. This is Come By Chance. Available now. Finding a comfortable position, growing tall through the spine. This is Dawn's happy place. Imagining that there's a balloon extending right out of the crown of your head, pulling your spine straight, slightly humbling the chin. The gaze is relaxed and soft. Dawn is doing yoga at home in her living room. And if you listen to her voice, that calmness, to me, I hear that she is the master of herself in these moments, that she is in complete control. And when you're ready, on your next inhale, reaching palms up for sky, interlacing the fingers, flipping the palms up to the sky and pressing away from you. But 10 years ago, when she started yoga at a gym in Saskatchewan, Dawn did not realize just how off balance she truly felt and that she really needed something like yoga in her life. When I saw the instructor come into the class and she had this calming, commanding presence and she started to create a mood within the room that was unlike any other experience I'd ever really had. I was tapping into a place within myself that I don't think I would have ever really tapped into. This is the story of how an intercultural reading of the ancient Eastern practice of yoga is helping not just Dawn, but a community across Saskatchewan. Doc Project producer Tanara McLean will take the story from here. My name is Dawn DeGeer. I'm a member of the Muscadet First Nation. I'm a full-time student. I'm a mom and a business owner as well. I have a lot going on, but I still do my best to try to find time to care for myself through yoga. Through the course of uh, yoga coming into my body, I began to actually land more in my body than I'd ever been in my life. Dawn started doing yoga several times a week. And while on the surface Dawn was focusing on the physical, her posture, her breath, her balance, something more was also happening. Her mind was turning inward, forcing her to truly look at herself. I was having little visual pictures in my mind of deeper things, and the word truth would come up all the time. 
uh, it was like words stamped in my forehead or, or I would just hear it like a whisper. I started to just ponder deeper things in life and deeper meanings and deeper questions that weren't really typical of me. It was doing something in me that I couldn't explain at that time, but yoga began me on uh, a journey that I didn't even know I was beginning. Dawn's journey through yoga opened up some pretty unpleasant feelings from her past. Home life was stressful for her as a kid, and she always felt like danger was lurking around every corner. Yoga was calming my mind, and it was calming my nervous system, and it was calming my fight or flight that I had lived in my whole life. And when I got into that state of of just kind of rest, um, my mind was able to function, I believe, at a different level or a different capacity because I wasn't always scanning and perceiving for threats. And I didn't know that it was, you know, working on a biological level. I thought I was doing exercise and I didn't know that it was um, allowing in new ideas and helping me get rid of old ideas. I didn't think about any of that in a holistic way. Dawn says this sudden awakening truly improved her life. But as time passed, she wasn't doing yoga as much anymore. Kids, work, and life in general sucked up her time, until there was no more time for yoga. About five years after she had her first yoga breakthrough, Dawn hit a wall one day at work in 2016. I'm sitting at my desk at work. I am so busy. I'm needed everywhere. I'm angry. I'm irritable. I'm afraid. My body is screaming at me. And I just feel like I'm going to break. I can't go on like this. But what am I supposed to do? Just leave my job? This memory for Dawn is incredibly poignant in her life. She's feeling the most rundown she's ever felt. I totally lost balance. And I was sitting at my desk one day just thinking, you know, like, I got to get out of here or something's got to change. And so I put a prayer out there to the universe. And I said, you know, creator, I don't know what you're going to do to help me but I need some help here because I'm not going to make it. I feel like I'm just on my last leg. And the last time I felt really good, I realized was when I had really been immersed in a yoga practice. And I just said, creator, please just bring me back to yoga. And just days after crying out to the universe, Dawn got her answer. I got a random phone call from a gentleman in Saskatoon named David Edney. He's like a yoga pioneer in Canada. In 2016, Edney was teaching yoga to inmates at the Saskatoon Correctional Centre. Although the inmates were happy to have the course, Edney didn't feel like it was as effective as it could be. David had found that the majority of the people that he was teaching yoga to were Indigenous and He felt that an Indigenous instructor could probably 
do a lot more to make a resonant practice with the people he was teaching than he could. So he sought out to find an Indigenous yoga instructor. And he'd been looking around for a few years and really couldn't find many. At that time, Don was working at the Saskatoon Tribal Council. They focus on improving Indigenous economic growth, financial management, and community planning. David Edney sought Don out to help him create a scholarship program to certify Indigenous yoga instructors, but he didn't know that she was also into yoga. As he was talking, I was just so astonished because I it, would, it had been only that week that I'd prayed for a return to yoga, and I didn't expect it to come in this way, but I got this growing sense of excitement that this is happening, something this here is happening for me, and I need to apply on this. In the first year, they had more than a dozen applications for the yoga scholarships. They managed to get funding for four people that year, and Don was also able to take the course. There was just an excitement around it on social media, the scholarship program, like it was shared virally right away. And um, so we knew that we were really onto something. People were applying from all over Saskatchewan. So in 2018, Don and David co-founded the Saskatchewan Indigenous Yoga Association, also called SIA. We also look at, you know, what are the unique needs of Indigenous people living here in Saskatchewan? and our communities, and how do we best tailor our teachers' training to specialize more in meeting those needs rather than just having kind of your standard yoga teacher training. SIA isn't just training people to be yoga teachers. They're also training therapists, daycare workers, and even university students who want to integrate yoga into what they're already doing within their communities. Our training is designed to meet the specific needs of Indigenous people and look at yoga through an Indigenous lens. And that helps the instructors find a focus that resonates for them with yoga when we look at it through our own cultural lens. But also, we just draw uh, parallels or similarities between um, yoga philosophy and Indigenous uh, cultural teachings and have found that there's, you know, quite a few. Harmony Johnson-Harder is one of those people who wanted to connect yoga to work she was already doing in her Indigenous community. My name is Harmony Johnson-Harder, and I am a Cree Métis woman from Treaty 6 territory in Saskatchewan. I am an artist, first and foremost, a new yoga instructor, and a mother and wife. Harmony is an artist through and through. She sings paints, dances, and it was right as she was about to finish an Indigenous Expressive Arts Therapy class in 2019 that she saw the call-out for a new round of SIA training. During the Expressive Arts course, it talked a lot about, you know, really zoning in on parts of your body and where you carry some of the stresses or the traumas or where, you know, you're, you're feeling something and how to release it. I thought it would be like a really good tool when I'm doing facilitating expressive arts, that it would be a great tool to share with people on how you can move in really gentle ways. You can move your bodies in healthy ways to help release 
that stress or that trauma that's locked in there without having to relive your trauma. The SIA program goes pretty deep into the history of yoga. It teaches students about how yoga, created 5,000 years ago, is a lifestyle that has basic principles of doing no harm to others, maintaining a mind-body balance, and allowing everyone to walk their own road. Don and Harmony say they were surprised to see the similarities between their own Indigenous cultures here in Canada and yoga culture in India. One that really stands out to me is not to have attachment to items and not to take too much, right? And so in the Indigenous worldview, we only take what we need, not to take more and not to hoard. Um, I've always been taught that the richest person in the community is the one who could give the most. Don says Sia isn't meant to make an Indigenous form of yoga. Instead, they're highlighting how the principles of yoga can reinforce existing Indigenous beliefs. I think it was Sadhguru who said on the garland of a necklace, like the string stays the same, but you can take beads and put any kind of beads or decorations on it that you want. It doesn't change the integrity of the string itself. And, and he was saying that that's what yoga is. And bringing your attention to the depth of the breath as you follow it through your nostrils and down into your lungs. And seeing if you can take your breath to the base of the lungs. Noticing how that naturally expands the ribs. Although the SIA training is only in its second year, Don sees a future for it not just in Saskatchewan or even just in Canada. We've had people um, from all over North America, people from, you know, as far as Hawaii or New York, um, apply for our yoga teacher training. And there are people out there who have just reached out and said, like, I was Googling Indigenous and yoga, and you guys came up. Apparently, there was, you know, quite a bit of interest in yoga in the Indigenous community that we weren't really that aware of. As far as we know, it's never really been done before. I look at yoga and its philosophies as a tool in my identity that I can parallel to my own teachings that that helps me day to day. I think it's just really infinite what yoga can do. Don DeGear and Harmony Johnson Harder. That doc was produced and mixed by Tanera McLean. It was edited by Jennifer Warren. SIA has had to move online during the pandemic, but they're looking forward to offering more in-person programming as provincial health guidelines shift. That's all for us this week. The Doc Project is produced by Tanera McLean, Joan Weber, Sherry Okeke, Allison Cook, Kristen Nelson, and me. Althea Manassen is our digital producer, and our senior producer is Jennifer Warren. I'm AC Rowe. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.